Family planning services who were in charge of enforcing the one-child policy began confiscating babies from families who had violated the policy. Making, making contact. Making, making, contact. Making, making contact. I'm Monica Lopez, and this is Making Contact. In January 2016, China's highly punitive one-child policy came to an end and became a two-child policy. But decades of family planning enforcement left generations of Chinese parents and children scarred from forced compliance. On this edition of Making Contact, we'll hear a conversation between three journalists at New America NYC and Chinaphile. Gaudi Epstein, China correspondent for The Economist, moderates the discussion with Mei Fong, New America fellow and author of One Child, the story of China's most radical experiment, and Barbara Demick, journalist and former Beijing bureau chief for the Los Angeles Times. The discussion was originally produced by New America NYC and Chinaphile. In October, China announced that the one-child policy was history, uh, although actually it's now becoming a two-child policy. Um, but we can pretty confidently say uh, the one-child policy will be an ignominious chapter in, in human history. Uh, Wang Feng, a, dom a demographer who lobbied hard for well more than a decade, amongst many, for China to change its policy, and I think all of us have spoken to him uh, before, has famously called the one-child policy uh, the worst mistake the Communist Party of China has made, or at least ranked it up there with the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. His argument, and I think an argument that is supported in, well in Mei Feng's book, is that the damage it has done has been broad, severe, and prolonged across generations. It has damaged the lives of mothers and would-be mothers, of children without siblings, or who have given up for adoption, or, or sold. Um, uh, of bare branches, single men who outnumber women of their generation and who are at risk of becoming jiaosu, or losers, to put it politely, um, of now aging parents with only one child to care for them, if any. It has also, as May writes really movingly in her, in her book, uh, scarred the lives of the enforcers of the one-child policy themselves and irrevocably torn the fabric of the communities they live in and work in, um, where they've forced abortions and sterilizations. Uh, um, the repercussions will live on for decades. Thanks, Gaudi. Um, the one-child policy had been going on for, you know, close to three decades by the time I started um, in working in China. And at the time, it was actually, it felt like it receded to the background a little bit. This was early 2000s. China's economy was on the upswing. And... Uh, there was this sense of you know, go, go China, you know, everything was going better. And, and people were really optimistic. So the issues of, you know, forced abortion, sterilizations felt that, you know, it was something that happened maybe in the recent past um, in, in the countryside, but it wasn't such a big issue anymore. At least that's, that was certainly the, the feeling I had, and, and I think many of us had, maybe because we lived in the cities. Um, so I think for me, the trigger point came about, um, and there were little things all along that you sort of saw, you know, for example, in 2003, um, I was covering the factory beat in China. I, I was in Hong Kong. I would regularly make trips to Dongguan and the southern manufacturing region to write about how um, China had become the factory of the world. I visited things like Brazil factories, toenail clipper cities, you know, and, and it was a town that produced nothing but jeans, you know, just jeans, jeans, jeans. Um, but even in 2003, I started hearing from factory owners. They were saying, look, oh, we don't have enough workers. Uh, we're running out of workers. We're finding it hard to hire workers. And 
it was actually, it felt very new then. You know, even then, people were saying, well, no, I mean, China's the most populous nation. How could you possibly run out of people so quickly? And then the answer, you know, on hindsight, it looks so easy to say the one-child policy. But actually, at the time when I talked to economists and all, they were saying, no, 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 it's not going to hit so soon. Don't worry about it. This is just a short-term anomaly. But on hindsight, this was the beginning of the end for China's manufacturing, and that was 2003. So I came across these little bits of things that sort of, you know, made you think about it. But the trigger point was 2008. Anybody remember what 2008 was? The Olympics, right? Beijing. This was China's big coming out party. And that was the whole country was all gearing up for it. Uh, but before that happened in March, uh, in May, sorry, uh, there was a, a big uh, unexpected event, which was the earthquake. Um, in Sichuan, and um, I was actually, at that time in Kunming, I was trying to sneak across the border to go to Burma to cover the Cyclone Argus. Remember that one? That was when Burma was actually closed out. They weren't letting in any journalists, and I, I couldn't get across. I was, so I was very disappointed. I was trying to get back to Beijing, and I flew across, and I missed the story because when I was flying across, the earthquake happened under me, and so when I landed in Beijing and I turned on my BlackBerry, I was like, oh my gosh, what happened? Um, you know, this thing happened, I've, I've totally missed it. All my colleagues were already on their way to Chengdu, and I felt like I missed the story. Then I decided, well, okay, there has to be another story, and then, and then so I thought, okay, well, Sichuan has a lot of guest workers. They work all across China. They're sort of like China's Appalachia. And I thought, well, what would it be like to follow a group of Sichuanese people back home and, and record how it went? And so I went to the train station and I found a group of construction workers, both male and female, who were trying to get back home to Sichuan. And the end was not good. Most of them discovered family members who were dead. Many discovered their children were killed. And this is the part where I realized that there was something else going on there because I didn't know that Sichuan, that area where the, close to the epicenter was actually a testing ground for the one-child policy. So before they launched uh, the one-child policy in 1980, they tested it in several areas first. This was one of the areas they were very coercive and very successful, and that was a um, that gave them um, the, the the sort of reassurance that this would be a a good thing that they could manage to do this nationwide. The results there were very good. But of course, 30 years down the line, when um, the earthquake happened, not only were children killed, many of them were only children, and so that was the start of the book for me. One of the first stories I did soon after that was about a miner, uh, a, a phosphate miner, who was 50. He, Within three weeks of the death of his teenage daughter, he had gone back and had a reverse vasectomy. Because this is one of the things. Not only did you only have one child, in many cases, after that you had to be sterilized. Uh, that was part of the package. So, you know, so years down the line, uh, something happens, then... All these parents were desperate. So within a matter of weeks, many of them were rushing back to the hospitals. And it might seem kind of cruel and callous, you know, when you're still mourning your child, but there was this whole pressure of time going on. So in his case, um, he was 50. His wife was 45. Um, he, he had to have this because he felt, you know, I have to do this. You know, I talked to them. I met them in their home village, and they were saying, you know, we have... Our neighbors are avoiding us because we have no children now. They think that we have, we're going to just be these useless hanger-ons and bother them. So we just feel like we can't exist. This actually touches on something that Barbara worked on. I don't want to spoil it by describing it. Why don't you tell me what you found in Hunan, right? Um, yeah, Hunan and uh, Guizhou. I mean, starting maybe 2001, 2002, um, you know, there was um, something of a shortage of babies for adoption. 
and the, the family planning services who were in charge of enforcing the one-child policy um, began confiscating babies from families who had violated um, the, the policy. Um, you know, one of the horrible things about the one-child policy was this, it created this whole repressive enforcement mechanism where inspectors were like looking for diapers on clothes lines and listening for crying babies and it was very intrusive. I mean, in some places, women had to show when they were menstruating to, you know, prove they weren't pregnant. These family planning people, um, you know, started um, punishing offenders by taking their extra babies. And uh, I found, um, I guess I documented seven or eight cases of them, but there were clearly, you know, cases in the hundreds. And, you know, this is something that's coming up increasingly among um, baby girls, many of whom are now adults or teenagers, who were adopted um, from China, wondering, you know, why were they given up? I mean, certainly there were, at the early years of the one-child policy, there were many, many abandoned baby girls. I mean, the Chinese preferred to have boys, or some preferred to have boys. But over time, and as um, sex selection became more common, there were not that many abandoned babies. So they were um, just, you know, basically grabbing them. But, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Are they grabbing them? Are they coercing them? Family planning had a lot of power. They could, um, you know, knock down people's houses. They could get you fired from your job. Um, you know, in some cases, they beat people to death. Not that many, but there were some. They had ways of coercing people into giving up their babies. Not all cases. You know, it was, it was very interesting to me dealing with the um, Chinese parents whose babies had been taken because these were girls, and they really wanted them back. You know, it didn't matter if it was the third or the fourth girl. They loved their daughters, and they wanted them. Of course, one of the, one of the disputes about was how widespread this was, and you, you went into that in a little bit in your book. This um, Dutch woman, uh, you, did you talk to her after, kind of after Barbara's stories, basically? Yes, I yeah. did. Um, so one of the big questions is China's a big place, right? So were these isolated cases, or was it something more widespread? Um, the cases Barbara documented in 2001, um, 2002, yeah, and then there were also cases in 2005 and in 2011. Um, many of them were in Hunan, but there were also other parts of China. So it was clear that there was more than just a few isolated cases, as the Chinese authorities claim. How much, we don't know, because the whole system is non-transparent. But uh, people who tried to push and, and find out more, and one of the people I interviewed in the book was this woman called Ina Hutt. And she was, um, the at the time, the head of one of um, the Netherlands' largest adoption agencies called World Children. She was sufficiently worried about it to try and make inquiries of her own. And she found that, she said there was so much pushback. The Dutch authorities didn't want to help her. The Chinese authorities told her that she had no standing. Um, and, and she went actually into China and did her own investigations. And what she found was she said, she said, it's much more widespread than we think. I cannot in conscience do this job. And so she resigned. And then when I spoke to her at that time, this was about two years ago when we met in New York at the foot of the World Trade Center <laughs> uh, Memorial. Um, and uh, she said, 
that, that time she had been five years without a job. She couldn't find a job again. She said nobody wanted a whistleblower. Now she's now a head of a, 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 a human trafficking uh, agency, nonprofit, and so she has found work again. But yeah, so that's her. Um, there's a, a guy called Brian Stye, uh, who's in Utah. He's a f ex-Mormon. And he ad uh, adopted several girls from China also. And he's, um, he leads a small research outfit which looks at the backgrounds of adoptees. And he's also been one of the people that firmly believes that um, the system is, is much more um, widespread and, and corrupted than we think. What I found interesting about this was, you know, many of us here know or, or, or have friends who have adopted children from China, uh, right? Uh, I bet, you know, any just a race of hands, anybody who knows of or... Well, yeah, see, there were 120,000 girls, um, mostly girls, uh, adopted from China as a result of the, you know, after the one-child policy was implemented, and I think roughly about 70,000 of them are in America right now. Some of them are already hitting their 20s and starting to ask questions about where they came from and how they came to be where they are. But what I found was interesting was, uh, in addition to talking to the parents of the peasant parents or the, adopt, or the birth parents, I also talked to the adoptive parents here in the States and asked them about what they thought about it. I mean, how would you feel if you, th you thought your daughter was trafficked? You thought you were doing a good thing by raising this unwanted child and taking her away from horrible conditions in Chinese orphanages. How would you like to, f to discover that maybe that wasn't quite the story that you were told? And what I found interesting was there was a huge resistance on the part of many adoptive parents here in terms of wanting to explore the truth or, or hearing sort of the unwelcome truth about it. People don't want to know. Um, so people like Brian Stye who talk about the, the ugly side of adoption, they are very unpopular within the adoptive community. And um, I remember I talked to a woman who was a Midwestern media executive. I said to her, and she had adopted two children from China. And I said, Hey, so how do you feel? You you you're in the news. You know this stuff. Um, so you you're not you're cognizant of the fact that there's a possibility that maybe your children might have been trafficked or bought. Or how do you how do you reconcile that? And she said, Well, you know, I thought about it a few years ago when uh, my daughter was hanging the Christmas decorations on the wall, and I thought, Well, at least she's hanging the Christmas decorations. She's not making them on a factory line in Dongguan. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I get what she means, but at the same time, what are you trying to say? That, you know, richer people should have more rights to, to children than, you know, where do you draw the line? I, I met parents uh, in, in China who have lost their children, and I met children who have been adopted who are clearly in much better circumstances here financially, everything else. And it's hard to imagine, you know, you, know, you, you can see the sort of lives they would have led if they had been, you know, back home. But at the same time, what are you trying to say? That it's okay to steal children, you know? When, when I interviewed some of the family planning people who had been taking children, it was very interesting speaking to them because they felt they were doing the right thing. The, the way these um, social service agencies were set up in China was the, the revenues from placing the girls for adoption were put into the um, social services. $3,000. Yeah, $3,000. They get, three, you know, whatever the other fees are, $3,000 cash goes to a social services system, and they were using the money to support disabled children, unadoptable, abandoned children. And many of these people felt they were doing the right thing. They said, you know, this is a very poor family. They had their fourth daughter. There's so many children, you know, the money, you know, they weren't, when you interview them, they weren't necessarily, you know, 
evil people. Well, this was what I thought was one of the more powerful parts of the book. Well, for me, partly because I had an interest in it, having talked to some enforcers myself. And this is sort of just describing the system, but then it gets into this one of these enforcers. Uh, what if a woman didn't want more children but, what would, but would prefer not to be sterilized? What if a couple got pregnant with their second child, say, three years after the first instead of five? Uh, the usual mode of punishment was fines. Parents of children born out of plan would be hit with fines between five and ten times their annual disposable income. Quote, if the couple is too poor to pay, we'll take things from their house, but only in a few cases, said Huang. TVs were a favorite, he said, worth a villager's whole annual income, as were tables, bicycles, and washing machines. One of the most difficult tasks Huang had to do was persuade women to be sterilized, he said. Many women feared the procedure. Side effects, such as excessive bleeding, were not uncommon, especially given the conveyor belt manner in which some of these procedures were done. The village women tried to bargain, said Huang. Some asked to use barrier contraceptives instead or promised not to have more than two children. Quote, but it was my job to get people to do the operation or else I would not be able to accomplish my target, said Huang. I can't possibly guarantee they won't have another baby with just a promise. You're listening to a conversation about the effects of China's one-child policy, presented by New America NYC on January 5th, 2016. After the break, Mei Fong discusses financial incentives for local officials who actively enforce the law. For more information about this or past shows, or to make a difference by supporting our work, go to radioproject.org. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to Mei Fong, Barbara Demick, and Gaudi Epstein discussing China's one-child policy. The one-child policy was, a, 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 you know, a very unpopular decision, you can imagine, so intrusive. So the only way that they could make it work was with a stick, big hard stick, right? Initially, when it was first implemented, um, it was chaos. China's a big place. It's very hard to enforce. Some places were very strict. Some places, eh. So the central authority figured at some point, okay, we need to really um, figure out how to make this work. And so they came up with an idea or a system accountability called um, one vote veto. A garden level official in some small town or whatever, birth quotas were part of your job. It didn't matter if you were doing economic stuff or something else. If you don't meet the birth quotas, you get a black mark. That's the one vote veto. And it didn't matter however well you did and whatever else you did, that black mark counts against you. So what will happen is you could lose your job, you could uh, lose major pay. And so that system created a very hard stick for the enforcers. And in turn, the enforcers were therefore harsh upon the people. They, they had to do it. And of course, with such a system, it's also right for corruption, right? You know, one thing you find about Chinese people, they're very ingenious, you know, they'll think of something to do. So, you know, I write about stories about their fake twins. You know, some people would register two siblings as twins when they were born very close together. Um, you'd have fake marriages, so you divorce and get married again. You, you go and have multiple children, you know, IVF treatment, so, you, you know, buy two, get one free kind of a situation. Um, and so, um, and, and, and some of it was money under the table too. Um, so this was an issue, I think, uh, coming forward uh, because eventually at some point, um, forced abortions, um, I believe, you know, you know they, there were less of them over time, but the fines uh, were, were a nice, you know, sort of a steady stream of income. It's, it's tax, right? For not, you don't have to provide much in the way of services, but you get this steady stream of revenue. And so, um, 
that became a big issue and became and there's one of the reasons why the one child policy became so entrenched uh, all this nice easy money coming in right not both for the system uh, for localities also for individuals I mean you're talking in the book about people getting bonuses for the number of sterilizations they they were able to persuade women to, to yeah, get. Yeah, so one um, of the guys I talked to is Uncle Lee, right? I call him Uncle Lee because he didn't want to be named. He was just an ordinary garden-level variety. Um, you know, uh, he told me he in his early years he had started off just being an official. It was his first job out of college. Um, and uh, he, he would make, like, bonuses would be like 50% of his income from however many, you know, targets he had. You know, the more sterilizations and abortions you had. And I the, the the more your pay, base pay would be inflated because um, it wasn't very much, you know, I think 3,000 renminbi, which isn't all that bad. It's not bad, but you can definitely inflate it up. And there are ways you can inflate it even more. Let's say um, in Kaohsiung, this woman who told me, she said um, there are cases, for example, if you have to go out of town in some places, you need a certificate to say you're not pregnant. So in order to get that certificate, you slip a little money under the table to the family planning enforcer. You know, so there's this whole grease system going on there. Right, and it did become very entrenched. People have been lobbying, like Wang Feng, who I mentioned in my introductory remarks, for um, a loosening or even elimination of the one-child policy altogether for more than a decade. Why do you think it finally happened? China's in a slow-moving demographic disaster, right? Um, you're going to, you already have a system where you have too many men, not enough women. You're going to have a system where you have too many old people and not enough young workers very soon. And, um, and, then, and so, you know, there's a sense that, you know, you have to sort of avert this a little bit. And we talk about, you know, okay, so 30 million men with no women, Canadian-sized population, a horny bachelors. Um, okay, so maybe, you know, and most of these are the most disenfranchised and poorest of farmers. Maybe the Communist Party can swallow that one, you know, just, you know, figure out a way to maybe get them to go colonize Xinjiang or, or, or figure out something. But uh, the aging issue, I think, is the biggest one. Uh, China currently has a, you know, the, the population, that big population that, that was the manufacturing boom, the population born before the one-child policy, that big group is aging and they're living longer. That's nothing to do with the one-child policy. It's just, you know, life and technology. But they have far fewer young workers to support them. And that is definitely, I think, bar none, the worst effect because that's something that you're going to see not just in the countryside but in the cities. You know, China currently has, I think, um, I think, five working adults to support one retiree. In a matter of 20 years, that's just going to jump to two, uh, 1.2 working adults. To, you know, so so that's, that's huge. I mean, if China's senior population were to form their own country, they'd be the world's third largest country. You know, So it'd be China, India, senior China. <laughs> that's how big it is. So you know, when you think about that as an aging population, China already has something like 25% of the world's Parkinson sufferers. You know, so that's going to jump up to over 60%, and you know, similar numbers for dementia and everything else that comes with old age. And you know, we have the same situation in America and Europe. We have a growing society, but that transition is taking only f maybe taking maybe 50 years to work towards. China's going to have that in 25 years, half the amount of time. And yet, they could have seen all that coming 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, if they had trusted demography as a science better. They didn't really have very good numbers or census figures when they actually started the one-child policy. Um, and you think that all these things down the line 
It's not rocket science to figure it out. But the interesting thing is the one-child policy was designed by rocket scientists. Right, yeah. but not without help. And this is another thing. I was wondering whether you can talk a bit about the Western influence. The thing about, you know, in the 60s and 70s was a period of time when the idea of a population explosion was, was very much an idea du jour at the time, you know. Um, China wasn't the only one worried about it. Um, there were all these treaties and, and concerns and, and even scenarios drawn up by MIT um, where they sort of envisioned that basically by this time we would all be dead or, you know, in severe dire straits because, um, you know, the planet would have depleted its resources. We had too many people. Um, what they didn't account for were things like the Green Revolution, which actually resulted in Earth producing enough uh, food. And also they didn't account for the fact that, you know, things like women's lib and, and all those things would result in fewer, uh, smaller families already. Um, but it was definitely an idea at the time. People were very worried about it. But only China had that kind of a, a structure. China for, for, for centuries has been all about the family. You know, and so even now, now you pare it down to one, that thread becomes even stronger. Everything about Chinese culture, you're not fully grown until you're married and you have a family. You're not considered an adult. You're very low in a societal totem pole if you're unmarried and you don't have children. So there's a question of social standing too. There's a whole complex reason. And that pressure now, because of the demographic time bomb that you've talked about, is only going to get greater, especially for, it's already happened for women. You talk, the Xiongnu, leftover women who are pressured to get married, to have, to have kids. And oddly, even more so now that there are more men available, <laughs> ratio-wise, um, and perhaps, perhaps because of that, more so, they face more pressure. Oh. <laughs> have men had it worse or women had it worse? I want to get your opinion on this too, Barbara. Um, okay, so you have been more men than women, um, 30 million more men than women, tough breaks for them because there's just no way China is going to be able to import all this uh, women in to fill the shortage. Um, and um, one of the things I write about in the story is um, I visit a bachelor village uh, in, in central China. Um, and, you know, one of the things is this bachelor village had virtually no marriageable women because everybody wanted sons. This was a village that tended to be very parochial. They only wanted to marry insiders, but needs must. So they started uh, looking for brides outside. Uh, one of the things is the custom of the country is what you call the bride price, Chai Li traditionally from the groom to the bride's family. And because of the shortage, this had gone up something like 10 years farming income. And so what this had led to was scams. So this village that I had gone to had three runaway brides. Um, you know, so the story was guy meets girl, um, in introduced girl um, through a matchmaker. Pay, his family scrapes and borrows all this money to pay for the bride price. They get married. Um, very soon, all the other neighbors are jealous. They're like, hey, you know, you got any other friends you can introduce this to? They ask the bride. The bride says, hmm, I think I got someone. Brings in another friend, get married, exchange the bride uh, price. Happens one more time. Then next thing, poof, all the girls are gone. The money's gone. And the men are lonely. So I, I met this one guy at, who was one of the leftover bachelors who had been duped. And he was actually strangely... Um, uh, chivalrous about it all. He, he, he didn't want to abuse this bride of his who had left. He said she actually called him after she left and apologized. And he said, I, 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 I suspected something was going on, but I was so happy. Uh, I, I don't want to blame her. I felt that she had you know, something driving her that made her do this. And, you know, but there he is. He's in limbo. <laughs> and this is not his fault, but he's stuck. So that's the men for you. And, um, and women. Well, 
there is one side of the one-child policy that has benefited uh, women, and that's urban young women. If you were born in a city after 1980 as a girl child, your chances of getting going to college and getting better educated, better fed, is better than any other time in Chinese history for a female. So it was good for them. But on the other side, now you see this backlash. You know, people want to rush you to get married. Um, there are stories about um, which um, somebody talks, Lita Hong Finch talks about an excellent book called Leftover Women, where uh, marriage registration for property, most of it's in a man's name, 70%. So you're expected to get married to some guy and help service the mortgage on this place, but guess what? Your name's not on the, on the bill. So if you divorce, you're stuck. So China's still a very patriarchal society. So even though there's an imbalance now and women theoretically have the upper hand, it's not happening. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. We want to hear your stories, too. Send them to us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Thanks to New America NYC and Chinafile for sharing that audio with us. To hear the full-length panel discussion, visit newamericanyc.org or our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcast, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.